0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Sue mi Terry, Director of the Asia Program and the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy at the Wilson Center. They discuss recent political and international security developments on the Korean Peninsula.
2: back to the age of chessboard. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Sumi Terry. She actually was one of the early guests with Victor Cha, but it's been a little while and things are happening on the Korean Peninsula, menacing things with implications for the security of the Republic of Korea, Japan, the U.S. and the region, but also broader geopolitics. So, Sue, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back.
2: You know, I asked you this when you and Victor came on, but real quick so people can get to know you, your trajectory has been sort of scholar, intel officer, practitioner, think tanker, obviously working at CSIS for a little while. (laughs) But but when you look back on it, sort of how did you get here? What explains your ability to just keep dealing with this menacing North Korea problem and the geopolitics of Northeast Asia?
1: Well, as you know, in the beginning, I I didn't really have a choice. Well, I had a choice. I was recruited to the CIA and I was a Korea watcher for a decade. And if you remember, I don't know if the audience knows, but one of my first jobs at the CIA was to be a briefer, personal briefer to Mike Green. I briefed him six for six months. I considered it a highlight of my career. <laughs> but CIA for 10 years, from Intel perspective, as you know, that's where you sort of get the experience and knowledge, and then a policy stint at the NSC, and then at the NIC, National Intelligence Council, and then in Academia Columbia, and then Think Tank community. I've just seen North Korea from a variety of different lenses, right? Korean Peninsula issues from a variety of different lenses. And it's just different. When you wear a different hat, you have a different perspective. But, you know, overall, I think I'm lucky enough to not have been just a one intel person or a policy person or an academic person. But I was lucky enough to really be able to follow Korea and be a Korea Watcher and deal with these issues from just a variety of different perspectives. So that's, that, you know, it's, it's been good overall, I have to say.
2: You've done really well and had a big impact in policy and in the public debate. And remind me, you used to come and brief me and the team at like eight in the morning. When did you get up to like prepare for that? When? I had
1: to get up 3 a.m. every morning uh-huh. for six months. I work, you know, going to work. And if you remember, because Mike Green for the audience uh, was senior director for Asia and his portfolio was, you know, it's all of Asia, right? It's covered South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. It's a huge portfolio. So I had to come into work go through the traffic, which is intel, on all these countries, put together a briefing book, and then come in by around 8, 8.30 a.m. to to brief you.
2: Yeah, two really important lessons for people doing their master's or their PhD or starting out in this business. You don't go to school and then become Henry Kissinger. (laughs) You have to do... Like physically hard work, you have to do staff work and you have to get out of your comfort zone, too. You have to, you had to cover, you're a Korea, North Korea watcher, but you had to come in and brief me on Afghanistan and Pakistan and the Solomon Islands. And uh, so two really important lessons. And you, know, you
1: made me very nervous because you're such a fast yeah. talker and, you know, like yeah. you, you go a million miles per minute. So I'm like, oh, my God. But uh, <laughs> we got it was- through it.
2: In those jobs, you count your day by minutes, you know, but you were great and obviously have done really, really well. If I could, Jude, before we turn to North Korea, you know, working North Korea and geopolitics in Asia often felt the the variable that was most important to us was the orientation of, of South Korea, of the Republic of Korea. And when we were well-aligned, we were in a much better position. And when we weren't well-aligned, it was a real sort of free radical in American strategy that just made us less sure-footed about our ability to deal with problems like North Korea. We now have a government in Seoul with President Yuan that's about as well-aligned with the U.S. and our, our other allies and partners as we've seen in a long time. And they put out an Indo-Pacific strategy themselves at the end of the year, which was interesting Because some of the people around President Yoon were telling me, we will not use Indo-Pacific, we'll use Asia-Pacific. But they put out an Indo-Pacific strategy using the same general frame of reference as the U.S. or Australia or even Japan. What do you make of this new government in terms of their overall trajectory and their ability to sustain this current approach?
1: So, as you noted, just South Koreans calling this Indo-Pacific is significant, right? They used to call it global Korea. I think the Moon administration really avoided the phrase or the term Indo-Pacific and called their strategy New Southern strategy and so on. So they are as aligned to the U.S. and our allies as South Korea can be, right? You know, they try to show that their policy is really anchored in International norms, rule-based order, universal values, so, you know, so there's a strategic alignment and in, they're in sync with Washington. They use phrases like growing concerns about democratic backsliding, challenges to universal values such as freedom, rule of law and human rights. They said um, they oppose, and this is quite notable, they oppose unilateral change of status quo by force, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. So these are all good things. Uh, They share many similarities with the U.S. version. And so we saw the Biden administration welcoming this document. And, you know, we can expect uh, South Korea to strengthen cooperation on a whole host of issues from economic security to energy security to science and technology, nuclear non-proliferation and so on. That said, I will still point out that the Koreans were very careful to still manage uh, this whole balancing act between Washington and Beijing. And that was also pretty clear, right? So they they, they still try very hard not to uh, upset the Chinese. Right. So it's not that's that's totally understandable. It's not a criticism. I'm just pointing that out, including even the timing of the release when they announced it. They also wanted to make sure they were port- like communicating with the with Beijing very carefully and so on. So, I mean, it, they are still managing this whole careful balancing act.
2: And Korea, of course, is far more dependent on trade with China than the U.S. or Japan. Foreign direct investment, it's the U.S., but for trade, it's a very dependent economy. How, you know, Jude and I on this podcast try to figure out a lot whether there's a feedback loop in Jiangnanhai, in whether, you know, people are telling Xi Jinping, you know, we're losing Korea, we're losing Australia or not. But, but Sue, how have you seen Beijing react to this new direction in Seoul's strategy?
1: I think they are. I mean, they are talking to the Koreans again, but the Yun administration was very careful with this Indo-Pacific strategy. That's why I say it's a very careful balancing act because President Yun announced this strategy in actually in November at the ASEAN summit in Cambodia ahead of the first in-person meeting with Xi Jinping at G20 in Bali. And then that time it was very carefully calibrated to get to see how Beijing would react to the release of the document. And then again, you know, administration was very carefully communicating with Beijing. So, you know, Chinese are I don't think they're overreacting at, at, at this point. Again, the UN administration is being pretty smart about how they are dealing with China. They were even in this Indo-Pacific sc- uh, strategy. They, used, they were actually inclusive of China, right? They call China still a key partner for achieving peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. They said they are not targeting or excluding any specific nation, and they're talking about China in that sense. So right now, I think the Koreans are broadly aligned with the United States. This is as close as they can. we can get the Korean government to be aligned, but they are still trying to do this very careful balancing act between Washington and Beijing, understandably so.
0: So if we can move slightly to North Korea, 2022 was a unusually busy geopolitical year. Obviously, we had Putin's invasion of Ukraine. We also had continued deterioration of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship significant developments in U.S. export controls on China, the visit by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. One of the issues that all of these shocks overshadowed was developments in North Korea, which you wrote recently was one of the most, quote, overlooked geopolitical developments of 2022. Can we first ask you to just catch us up to speed on what happened last year in North Korea that you think merited or should have merited more attention?
1: Yeah, so last year was a very important year for North Korea, very significant in terms of North Korea's WMD program just really rapidly morphing and expanding. Uh, they returned to unprecedented level of provocation, some hundred missile tests, including ballistic missiles, ICBMs. Then they declared a new nuclear doctrine in September of last year, which was a very concerning development. They announced five conditions under which they would actually launch a preemptive nuclear strike. And the conditions include even when a non-nuclear attack by so-called hostile forces are imminent, or simply when North Koreans perceive that it's unavoidable to prevent expansion of a conventional conflict, right? So that's uh, concerning development. This the nuclear doctrine, the threat of preemptive use. And then there was an intense focus on tactical nuclear weapons, focus on simulating Strikes on South Korea, right? South Korean airports, military command facilities, and you know, just it's, it's it didn't even look like we're just like testing. It almost looked like an operational exercise, right? Um, so then we have that, and then on top of that, it's not also the number of tests and focus on tactical nuclear weapons and you know lowering the threshold of preemptive nuclear use. They also tested very important capabilities. Right. Not only like ICBMs, like the Hwasong-17 that they launched in November, which is the newest, the most powerful and largest road mobile ICBM in the world. But they tested this first of its kind solid fuel rocket engine. And, you know, people might be like, what is that? Why is that important? But it still gives North Korea ability to, well, it just allows a shorter um, window of time to preempt a missile launch right so liquid fuel missiles are more vulnerable to monitoring or even preemptive strike it takes longer to launch so it makes sense from north korea to move to this kind of solid fuel capability and all of this is in line with what they announced their five-year plan that they set for themselves during the eighth party congress in january of 2021 so Again, you know, and while all of this is happening, we don't have any kind of effective response at all. We're just sort of sitting there watching North Korea do all this. So um, that's why I say it was a very significant year, and I just don't think there's enough attention being paid to this.
0: So before we get to that reaction or non-reaction, can I just ask, what was driving these developments from the regime?
1: Well, they were already on the path, right? So after the failure of the Hanoi summit, Kim Jong-un basically came back home, humiliated, super upset, and then he said, well, I'm going to qualitatively and quantitatively expand uh, nuclear missile program. So they've been working on it. And then after the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when the whole world is distracted, to be frank, I mean, there is no response. I mean, we can get to that, but there's just no repercussion to this, right? So they were already on the path. Kim Jong-un has made up his mind to not return to negotiations and just get to next technical level and really expand its nuclear missile program. And then there's just lack of effective response internationally.
0: Final question before we get to the non-response response. Any other indications of how Putin's invasion of Ukraine was viewed from Pyongyang or, or any uh, affects your implications that had on North Korean regime?
1: I think there's two. I think first, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine just reinforced this notion that Kim Jong-un should not give up nuclear weapons, right? That, that lesson has been reinforced with Iraq, with Libya, but now you add Ukraine. And then secondly, when you look at Kim Jong Un's, uh, this year, the whole past years, focus on the threats of preemptive use, that's, that's taking a page right out of Putin's playbook to threaten use and then hopefully deter, uh, U.S. from any, or, you know, South Korea from doing anything, right? So even though when North, from Kim Jong Un's perspective, you see United States and the West countries, helping Ukraine. we still not, we don't have troops in Ukraine. We're not, there's a limit to what we are doing, right? So I think that's another lesson for Kim Jong-un.
0: So getting to how the U.S could have or should have responded to this. Obviously, as we said at the start of this discussion, it was an extraordinary year for the U.S. in dealing with geopolitical challenges. What do you think was the an appropriate and realistic response from the administration? And then just moving beyond that to a broader question, what the heck do we do about this problem, given that, as you indicated, you know Pyongyang has learned the lesson 600 times now that don't get up your nuclear weapons. We seem to show relative... Uh, ineffectualness of finding leverage that we're willing to use and we see that other potential players in this whether that's Moscow or Beijing are now out of the completely out of the picture so what could we have done more narrowly over the last 12 months and then more broadly what what is the appropriate response from the US so you
1: know first i think the us it's, and I don't mean to blame the Biden administration because as Mike knows, I mean, anybody who's been a policy position, this is North Korea, North Korea is just a, really a problem from hell. So I'm not even trying to blame the Biden administration, particularly when we are dealing with a lot, right? So number one, there's a genuine distraction uh, from the Biden administration and and the world, also understandably, right? There's a lot going on in the world. Uh, We have the Chinese balloons. No, but there's an actual war going on, right, with the Ukraine conflict, with U.S.-China competition and domestically, too. There's a lot of issues. So to be fair, uh, there's a lot going on. And secondly, there's not a whole lot that I guess the Biden administration, even if they wanted to do things, there's not a whole lot that they can do in terms of trying to get the North Koreans to come back to dialogue, because the Biden administration has already reached out to the to the North Koreans and they're willing to sit down with them anytime, any place uh, without precondition. But it's North Koreans that are not. Um, You know, interested in returning to dialogue because if you're, if you're Kim Jong Un, why would, why would he, right? If I'm Kim Jong Un, if I'm advising Kim Jong Un myself, I would say hold off until you get to the next technical uh, level. Um, so I think the only things that we can do. And this is one thing they, they are trying to do, the Biden administration, is to stay closely aligned with Seoul and Tokyo. Um, they have resumed bilateral exercises, which they should be doing. They have resumed even trilateral exercises with Japan and Korea Japan are trying to improve their relationship. We need to try to enforce sanctions, um, which is hard to do because China and Russia are not playing ball. But it's really deterrence, containment, sanctions enforcement, and then listen to the Koreans um, about, I, I don't think we should have just a knee-jerk response in terms of strengthening extended dis- deterrence, um, just sort of ruling some of these things out. I think we need to really explore what we can do to really show the North Koreans that we are going to strengthen extended deterrence. I mean, there's not, there's not a magic answer uh, when it comes to the North Korean problem.
2: So, yeah, I mean, those who've worked on this problem, 90% at least, would say we're in that uncomfortable but unavoidable sort of space where we're combining deterrence and some containment of the problem, a little bit of diplomacy, but we're not going to solve it. We're managing it as best we can. That's kind of where every administration has ended up in the U.S. There are alternate views. You know, President Trump talked about a bloody nose, a military option. I I don't hear that anymore. I think that was pretty discredited once people started doing the math, figuring out casualties and, and challenges of escalation control. But I have noticed in the past six months, the other idea that I think is a really bad idea, you probably do too, is coming back. And that's, well, heck, they are a nuclear weapon state. Let's just acknowledge them as a nuclear weapon state and enter into an arms control negotiation and, and deal with them the way we would the Soviets or China or any other nuclear weapon state. Let's just, you know, call a spade a spade. So I've noticed some of your colleagues in Washington, I'm out here in Sydney, are starting to... So it's people who've been sort of pushing that line for a while are pushing it again. And I know you think it's a bad idea, but let's just quickly drive a state through the heart of that one. Why is it a bad idea to acknowledge North Korea as a nuclear weapon state and sort of go for an arms control agreement the way we would have with the Soviets or another, you know, accepted nuclear weapon state?
1: Well, even just to get to that point though, I don't think even North Koreans are even interested in sitting down for dialogue. But that also present a whole host of uh, problems. Well, first of all, you know, there's also regional proliferation risk, right? I mean, South Koreans are already talking about potentially uh, developing their own nuclear weapons. Um, So once you accept North Korea fully, you know, I think there's no question that South Korea would absolutely try to go nuclear. So there's a regional proliferation risk. And, you know, what kind of message does it send to all the rogue countries um, that are just, all you have to do is sit there and just, you know, hang on, and then you'll be accepted as a nuclear weapons power. I think in reality, though, Mike, we understand that North Koreans are not going to give up nuclear weapons, right? Most likely. But accepting North Korea as a, as a nuclear weapons power, as a policy, I just don't see the Biden administration or any other administration doing that. Just because of, you know, just the wrong message it sends. It's not like they're going to abide by any kind of, even if there's an agreement there's no way to really verify. It's not like we didn't have any agreements with North Korea. We had many agreements with North Korea. Um, when you look at history, every single agreement fell apart over verification. Um, so there's no way to even verify they were, even if there's an agreement, they will do what they say they're going to do. I'm sure Mike, you have a whole host of other reasons why things no, are not bad. No, idea, it, so.
2: it, it drives me crazy when I hear it, but you're right. It, it, there's a proliferation risk. We, North Korea has a perfect track record of cheating on agreements. And we don't have actual formal arms control agreements with them that would be treaties. And then, of course, there would be a price for that. The North Koreans would agree to this in exchange for sanctions lifting and opening the spigots. And you open the spigots and then they start enriching their clandestine nuclear weapons programs. We can't verify. So it's it's a bad it's a terrible idea all across the board.
0: So the comments that President Yoon made in January at a press conference About maybe given developments in North Korea, that South Korea needs to develop its own capability. Was that a comment about lack of faith in US extended deterrence? Or was that a comment about how um, North Korea had acted over the last 12 months or a bit of both? And then what were the reverberations of that comment? I, I feel like that sort of tailed off a little bit. Was that walked back quietly?
1: It was walked back only because I think the U.S. pushed back and sort of, you know, the U.S. had very muted response to that. So President Yun tried to walk back. I think it's a combination of things. Right. So we have this development on the nuclear missile front that I just described in the past year. So we have increasing Concerns from South Korea. In fact, and then there's a domestic angle to that because, you know, every survey and the most recent survey showed that, and the most recent survey was by the Che Institute for Advanced Studies. Some 76% of Koreans support arming their country. Now, okay, it's not a detailed way of asking, you know, it was not nuanced and so on, but still. Um, majority of Koreans are now saying, okay, there's this growing threat and we need to do something about this, right? Only like 3% of the people polled said that they don't need nuclear weapons of any kind. Um, And then, so there is a North Korean threat that's increasing, there's a domestic angle. And then I I do think that President Trump, it's not that they don't trust extended nuclear umbrella coming from the Biden administration, but I do think there is a fear in the future, and we cannot guarantee this, right? a future isolationist U.S. president could potentially say, you know, we need to pull out troops. And this is not an unthinkable scenario. We had President Trump talking about that, right? So they can't really rely on the U.S. forever and evermore, right? So they can rely on the this current administration, but there's uncertainty to the future administration. So I think this is a combination effect. Now, I think President Yoon, frankly, was probably speaking honestly, reflecting public opinion, and, and when he made this off-the-cuff remark that South Korea may build a nuclear arsenal or ask the United States to redeploy tactical nuclear weapons back. But again, it's not an official policy, And they, but it is, it is the first time I do think that South Korean president officially mentioned arming the country with nuclear weapons since the tactical nuclear weapons were removed in 1991.
2: This is in the air in Seoul, isn't it? And I think the administration in Washington is going to have to respond by empowering uh, the Korean government more in discussions and strategy for extended detourants. Um We see it in Japan, although in Japan, you know, 80% of Japanese never want nuclear weapons, but nevertheless, there's a lot of uncertainty in Japan as well. And the the right answer is for the U.S. to engage these allies much more deeply on our nuclear strategy and extended deterrence. I think you'll see more of that. I'm also... You know while it's in the air and there's a lot of noise about this in Seoul, I think there's a certain cognitive dissonance for Korean political leaders because if the ROK chose to pursue nuclear weapons, it would be doing it in defiance of the the so-called one two three peaceful nuclear agreements with the u s It would undermine not strengthen u s. extended deterrence, would leave them more vulnerable, and it would very likely lead to major sanctions against South Korea by the entire OECD, in other words, isolate South Korea. <laughs> And damage the South Korean economy. So I, you, you very rarely in the debate in Seoul hear the the cost of admission to the nuclear for Korea in terms of a weaker U.S. extended deterrent, but also just complete isolation in nuclear technology and economic terms. It would not be cost free at all. And I don't know why that isn't in the debate, but you don't hear it as much, do you?
1: yeah but there there are other things that they can do, right? so it's true that if South Korea so on one hand of the, one one extreme is like what you just mentioned that if South Korea were to pursue their own nuclear capability, it's a violation of international law, you know they have to preemptively withdraw from NPT, risk international sanctions, all of that, so that would not be a good decision right because South Korea could be left uh, politically weakened and, and there's going to be negative reaction. China, Russia, and elsewhere. And then even bring pre- it, and then, so, so that's sort of the one end. And then there's, and then Koreans are talking about deploying tactical nuclear weapons to South Korea. But again, you know, the Americans will say that's unnecessary, that's dangerous too, because such weapons could simply just create, you know, they could be targets for North Koreans, right? And just encourage North Korea for a preemptive strike. And again, you know, our military could deploy or launch from variety of nuclear weapons from outside of the Korean Peninsula. So what is the point of that? But, There are the Korean, you know, I just came back from Korea, I met with Korean officials and what they're seeking is not necessarily these things, but they want several things from the United States. They want assurances that U.S. would defend South Korea, more robust assurances. And the phrase that I'm hearing a lot is that they want to actively be involved in joint nuclear planning, right? And joint delivery, but maybe joint delivery is hard, but joint nuclear planning greater information sharing, and so on. So one senior official said basically that they want a Korean model of nuclear cooperation, right? So they want to be consulted rather than just be forced, sort of passively rely on U.S. assurances. They want to sort of be able to jointly plan and and so on. So I I do think there are, you know, ways to make the Koreans feel more comfortable and less, you know, insecure about this, you know, outside of sort of allowing for U.S. to deploy tactical nuclear weapons or South Korea to develop their in indigenous ah. nuclear capability?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think, and I think the administration knows this. The, the right answer is not to ignore this or assume that Korea can't develop nuclear weapons because technologically they could, the South. and I think the right answer is what you said. Um, you know, empower more the professionals, the planners in Seoul, in our... I don't see joint nuclear planning. That's not going to happen, not during nuclear war plans, but empower them more in terms of our thinking and our strategic concepts and the relevance to contingency planning for the Canadian Peninsula. And meanwhile, provide the farm ministry, the defense ministry and others, academics with, you know, a pragmatic narrative and information so we can talk about this in the public domain in a way that's a win for the alliance. Uh, I think it's manageable. Let me turn back to North Korea for a minute, Sue. You know, geopolitically, Kim Jong-un is in a really good position right now. Because of the Ukraine war and uh, China's new confrontation with the West and geopolitical competition. So pretty good position geopolitically. But what about domestically? I mean, we're seeing all of this bellicose rhetoric and talk about preemption and so on and so forth and missile testing. But Kim Jong Un also just warned the public that there could be famine and the conventional capabilities of the KPA, the Korean People's Army, are degraded and not recovering. So, you know, We haven't talked about instability in a long time publicly, but that's always on the radar, the possibility of instability and North Korea's weakness being a problem. So how do you look at the internal strength and and cohesion of the North Korean regime?
1: So, I mean, their economic problems are very serious, but we've been through this before. That's not necessarily what's going to cause instability, right? So in the famine years, you have millions of people perished, but as long as the elite support the Kim regime, it will continue. So I do think Kim Jong-un has pretty much firm control of over the regime. The economic situation is pretty dire. Elite support is still there. So I don't see a cause for any kind of concern for instability. Um, the health concern is always there because it's always been a wild card. And we really don't have any kind of understanding about the state of his health, right? He has a family history of all kinds of you know, diabetic and, and, you know, just poor family heart, heart disease and so on. So, you know, th- this is why I get back to if you want to sort of not to cause instability, but the one indicator that I do see is how much the elites support the regime and also how much money there is, right? And this is why I sort of, you know, one thing I didn't mention is that one of the policy angle has to be continually trying to deprive the Kim regime of cash, um, because that's how it also gets support from the elites. But otherwise, you know, I don't really see a cause for instability because, again, economic, poor economic situation or dire economic situation does not necessarily lead to regime instability in North Korea.
0: Sue, so something that I think everyone has been holding their breath for is another nuclear test by Pyongyang. I, I wanted to ask, what do you think the implications of that test are and what do you think the likely reactions are going to be? And I'm going to tip my cap at my next question, which is going to be how Beijing is looking at all of this. This is one of those as I think as long as I've been working on China, the question of when will Beijing do more to reign in Pyongyang has been a, a yearly occurrence. And every year everyone is disappointed by Beijing's seeming inability or unwillingness to do anything. But I must imagine That as Beijing looks at the developments you talked about over the last year in terms of changes in nuclear doctrine, missile tests, now the prospect of a nuclear test, comments coming out of Seoul, even if they were walked back a bit about developing their own nuclear capabilities, I can't imagine Beijing is looking at this with much optimism, yet here we are not thinking about them as being a potential solution. So a two-parter the test and, and implications. And then if just as an ending note, where is Beijing and why the continued unwillingness to play a productive role here?
1: What's an interesting question is why the North Koreans have not conducted seventh nuclear test yet. Right. Um, we've been all predicting a seventh nuclear test, probably a tactical nuclear weapons test for a while now. So some people speculate maybe it has something to do with Beijing I'm really not sure. I, I just think North Koreans, there's a whole lot of tests, different kind of tests they can do, a variety of different tests. They're just not in a hurry, but they will get there. In terms of Beijing, I mean, I would like to ask you, uh, it's just, you know, will they really care? Okay. They're going to be uncomfortable. They don't like it, but what are they going to do about it? Various ICBM tests have been, you know, conducted in the past year. We couldn't even come up with a, any kind of resolution, right? We couldn't even. Universally condemned or not, United Nations Security Council couldn't even, we could, China and Russia couldn't even agree to that. So I'm not entirely sure that even if uh, there's a seventh nuclear test, we're gonna get any kind of help from China. Also particularly on the sanctions enforcement front. So I'm not optimistic that they will help us. And as to why, I mean, I think it's just a different geopolitical environment with uh, you know increasing competition between US and China. And, you know, this is kind of loose alignment between China and Russia and North Korea. I, I just don't see them prioritizing helping us on North Korea at all. So they may not like it, but I just don't see them doing anything about it.
2: It is not the same China that we were dealing with when I was in the NSC and you were briefing me 15, 20 years ago, where I think most people in the administration would have said, On the North Korea problem, China's you know, 40% with us, 30% with us. Now it's down to single digits, the amount of help we get if you were to put a percentage on it. I do think the missile tests are different for Beijing. The MRBMs and ICBMs are targeting Japan and the U.S. basically, and are therefore, you know, diplomatically problematic, but don't really get the Chinese public upset. Jude, you should weigh in here. But I think when there are nuclear tests, you can feel them in Shenzhen and some parts of China, and the netizens go mad, and it's it'd be like a nuclear test in Canada or Mexico. People don't like it, so I think she and the test would be under domestic pressure. And I I suspect Beijing has probably put a pretty hard red light, that, you know, up on nuclear tests. But I don't know, Jude, what you what you're seeing.
0: I, I think there's a similarity in, between Beijing's approach to Pyongyang and its approach to Moscow. I think there are elements of their behavior they'd like to rein in, but I think in a time of growing geopolitical rivalries, Beijing's not, that's not the first order equation that they're going to try to solve. And as we just saw with Beijing's supposed position paper on peace in Ukraine, Beijing is also hesitant to really actively stick its head up and offer that it can help solve problems because when you can't, you're in a position of looking weak and ineffectual. So they like to do enough sometimes to make it sound like they're you know, their heart's in the right place, but no appetite whatsoever to become involved in this. I think the only thing, and this is why I mentioned Yoon's comments, those did register because while they can manage, I think, a North Korea, I think once you start to see some appetite builds in Seoul, in Tokyo for um, for their own sort of capabilities, I think that that has an effect in Beijing. But as, as Sue said, that conversation hasn't gone very far in Seoul. So I think it was a blip, but ultimately as long as Beijing can maintain the status quo, they're happy. And then final thought is, you know, Beijing as a political cousin of North Korea un- understands the complexities of, of regime sustainability and their view is first do no harm on regime security.
2: So Sue, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into. Um, uh, it's it's so fascinating, a little bit scary and complicated because we're talking about several chess games at once. You've got the Korean Peninsula chess game. You've got the geopolitics with China. The two are very closely related, but don't move on the same cycle um, and are dependent on what happens in Seoul and Pyongyang. And and we don't know what's happening in Pyongyang all the time. So to the extent we can ex- explain it or understand it, you're at, you're you're there doing it for us at the Wilson Center in podcasts like this. So thanks so much for for spending the time with us.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me on. Love to come back. Maybe after the seventh nuclear
2: test. I doubt this will be solved in the next year or two, so we'll definitely have you back. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the US Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.